Good morning, Alathia Church. I hope you are doing fine, well, and wonderful on this Sunday morning. But if you're watching this, it means that we got canceled due to rain. Let's jump right into this puppy. Let me give you the format for today. This is going to be a true expositional sermon. We are going to go through it not only line by line, but section by section within each line. 1 Timothy chapter 3, verses 14 through 16. Please read along with me. I hope to come to you soon, but I am writing these things to you so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. Great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. He was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. The first part, the first section of 1 Timothy 3, verse 14. I hope to come to you soon is actually a very astute, astounding, magnificently wonderful recognition of the Apostle Paul writing this letter to Timothy of the sovereignty of God. You may have read over statements like this a lot in Scripture. I know that I have, but I want to, especially in the midst of 2020 and everything going on in the world, I want to point out something to us that I think we need to be more aware of in the Word of God, and in our daily lives. Paul says, I hope to come to you soon. Now, this may just seem like offhanded, not not very meaningful, but again, it is profound because in this, Paul recognizes that he is not sovereign. Now, I, I want you to think about maybe even six months ago in your life, or I guess it's nine months ago before COVID took over the entire world and our news feeds and our social feeds. You probably had lots of plans, and there were lots of discussions that you had in your life, and people said, hey, what are you going to be doing next semester? Hey, what are you going to be doing this summer? And you're like, well, man, I'm going to go get an internship. Oh, man, I'm going to graduate, and I'm going to go get a job. Or, man, I'm going to go on this mission trip. And you simply stated that you were going to do all of these things. And then COVID hit, hit, and it's now ruined all of those plans. And right now, I bet... In a lot of your conversations, when people are asking you, hey, what are you going to be doing next semester? Hey, what are you going to be doing this summer coming up in 2021? I bet a lot of your statements have now been rephrased to say, well, I hope I'm going to get to go to this place. I hope I'm going to get to go to this internship. Guess what? You have now recognized that you are not sovereign. That there are things in this world of greater magnitude than you, that you you do not have the individualistic streak inside of you to overcome all of these things. And this is one of the strongest warnings we actually have in all of Scripture. Listen to what James chapter 4, verses 13 through 17 says. Come now, you who say, today or tomorrow we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. As it is, 
You boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. So whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it is sin. So this subtle statement that Paul makes is profound because it recognizes, and I want you to recognize, you are not sovereign over your life. But pay attention. It says, when you do this, when you proclaim sovereignty over your life, I am going to do this, rather than I hope I am going to do this, the Bible says that is a great evil. Boasting like that is evil. Now, I don't know about you, but on my list of evil, I've got murder, I've got genocide, I've got rape, I've got adultery. But just simply stating what I'm going to do and not inserting the word hope in front of it is not on my list of evil. But yet, God considers it to be evil and a grave and serious sin because whether we intend it to or not, when we say, I am going to do this rather than I hope to do this, we are expressing that we are indeed sovereign and God is in fact not. Just a little nugget to chew on this morning to start off our sermon with such a positive note. Now, Paul says, I hope to come to you soon, but I am writing these things to you so that. Now, if you have not been with us previously over the last several weeks, as we have opened up 1 Timothy, we have the Apostle Paul writing to Timothy. Timothy, who is his true child in the faith. He's also writing to the church that Timothy is currently overseeing in Ephesus. This is a church that Paul has planted. So what that means is Paul knows this church really well. He knows the people. He knows the players. He knows the issues. He knows the discussions. He knows everything that is happening inside of this church. And he has addressed that the point of this letter, his aim is the charge is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. So far, he has given a warning to false teachers. He has mentioned the goodness and the usefulness of the law of God, and he's contrasted it against sins such as those who strike their fathers and mothers, people who are murderers, the sexually immoral, those who practice homosexuality, enslave others, and bear false witness. He recognizes that Jesus Christ has come to save sinners of whom he claims he is the absolute worst. He has reminded Timothy of his charge, his commission, and confirmation in the ministry. He has addressed how he expects men and women and leaders to conduct themselves inside the household of God as followers of Jesus Christ. And he has laid out the qualifications for elders and deacons in the church. So he says, I hope to come to you soon, but I am writing these things to you so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of truth. Paul is saying, I want you now to know. The reason I've written what I've said so far, the reason I'm writing this is that you know how to behave in the household of God. So let me take this word, the household of God, this idea of the church. When someone mentions church, I don't know what first comes into your mind. 
what probably first comes into your mind is the thing that comes into most people's minds first and foremost. It is a building. It is a location that most of the time when someone says, hey, where do you go to church? You go, I go to Aletheia. And they go, where is that? And you immediately point to that. They don't ask who is a part of that church. They ask where that church is. The church is most often associated in our minds with a building at a specific physical address and location. But that is not how the Bible speaks of the word church and uses the word church and understands the word church. It understands it that it is the living God's church, that it is God's family, that it is God's assembly, it is God's gathering, it is this group of men and women and children all around the world that God has redeemed and reconciled to Himself. And so when we think about the church, when we think about the household of God, we should not first and foremost think of a building. We should think of the people who are a part of the family of God. And as with all families, there are certain expectations for behavior. There's behavior that's suitable and behavior that is not suitable for those who are a part of the family of God. I love the idea that we are a family. Having a church family is an incredible comfort to me. I am married I have four children, and it is of great comfort to me that if anything were to ever happen to me, you would be there for my wife and for my children. You would walk alongside of them. You would care for them. Young men in this church, you would, you would raise, help raise my boys. Young women, you would help my wife raise our girls. That You would be a part of their life because you understand this is what family does. Guys, do you realize very few people in the world have this. Outside of the church, very few people have such an extensive network that they can reach into and know that there will be those to come around and help them and to walk with them if the worst possible circumstances happen in their lives. But you know, that, that family doesn't just exist here at Aletheia Church. That family extends around the world. My wife and I, travel a lot when we're not in the middle of a pandemic. We have been to at least a dozen countries together, and we have plans on going to dozens and dozens more. One of the great comforts that I have traveling overseas is if anything ever happened, if we ever got stuck, if we ever got stranded, the first place I would go would not be to the police precinct or to the embassy. The first place that I would go is I would go and find a local church. Because I know that I can go anywhere in the world and through my bond and through our bond as followers of Jesus, I know that they would take us in and they would care for us and they would point us in the right direction of where we need to go. Church, do not overlook the blessing that the family of God is to you and to your life today and in the future. Back to what Paul said that he's writing so that they would know how they ought to behave. All families have rules and expectations. Whether they are good rules or good expectations, it does not matter. But all families have these rules and expectations. And at the chief of God's expectations, the first, the foremost, the primary expectation that God has for us as His children, as His family, can be summed up in, in one simple statement that we see 
in the Old Testament in Leviticus 11.44 and repeated in the New Testament, 1 Peter chapter 1.16. You shall be holy, for I am holy. If you want to know the overarching big picture of what God expects of you and your behavior, it is that you shall be holy because your Father, your God, is holy. So let me say this to you. You now no longer have to ask, what is God's plan for my life? It is actually very simply summed up in these words. Be holy because God is holy. Now, if you want to be holy as a doctor, you have the freedom to do that. Holy as a lawyer, holy as a school teacher, holy as a garbage man, holy as a stay-at-home mom, it does not matter. You have the freedom to live your life and to do what you want to do. Faith for all of life in every area, if and as long as you choose to be holy in whatever you do. God's expectations are that we would behave in alignment with, this, with His character. And this character finds its expression in love and in righteousness and justice, mercy, and so on and so on and so on. For this is the standard for the children of God. Now, let's talk about the rules for a moment. Some of us like rules. Some of us like clear expectations. Some of you, this tells you which camp I'm in, no matter the source of the rule or the rightness of the rule, you don't like to be told what to do. You want the freedom to figure it out for yourselves. You don't want anyone over you in any way, shape, or forms. So I want to say something to those who like the rules and to those who don't like the rules, especially if you are not yet part of the family of God. What is holding some of you back from being part of the family of God? Your big objection, the big wall that you see in front of you is that you don't like God's rules found in Scripture. You don't like His law. You don't like His instruction. You might think they are unjust. They are unfair. They are unloving. They are antiquated for another time, another place, and they are seemingly harsh. You see, having to follow these rules is a roadblock to following Jesus. At least you know what your objections are. I'll give you credit for that. But let me ask you this. What is unloving, antiquated, and harsh about the commands to love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and your neighbor as yourself? What's so harsh about telling someone, love someone the way that you want to be loved in return. Do unto others as you would have them do unto you, the golden rule. To you who like the rules and are not yet a part of the family of God, who think that you by your own merit and by your own good works could one day earn entrance into God's eternal dwellings, let me remind you that the Bible says to you, in Romans chapter 3, 23, all human beings have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And also in chapter 3, verse 20, it says, By works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight. If your plan and your hope is that your own good works and good deeds will one day earn you entrance into heaven, the Bible says, stop trying. It will never work. Your good deeds will never be able to erase your sin against a holy God. 
Now, if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. Now, I'm sure in your mind, you know exactly what a pillar is. You've seen somewhere some column going high into the sky and some kind of roof or some kind of structure on top of it. You understand that the pillar supports something above it. But you may not know what a buttress is. And like me, you may have to look it up and go, exactly what is this thing? I think I know what it is, but it's there. So because of technology, I don't know if we can give you the photo today, but just imagine like an old castle wall going up all these stones and something leaning up against it. And so it's driven deep into the ground, and so the wall won't fall over because the buttress is holding it up. A buttress supports a wall. A pillar usually supports um, a roof that is above it. And Paul makes this declaration to us as the family of God, as the children of God, as those who are the living God's church, that we are a pillar and buttress of the truth. We see imagery like this used regularly in Scripture. But we also know, if we think about a pillar, that the pillar has to rest on something, the foundation. And we also know that the foundation is dependent upon one key stone, the cornerstone. And so I need you to imagine with me this building in your mind of a cornerstone that then supports and connects to the foundation, the foundation which then supports the pillar or the buttress, and above it is the roof, and this thing that it's supporting is the truth. For that is the imagery that is captured here in the mind of Paul and also in other places and other letters that he has written, but also in the Apostle Peter as well. So just let me show you this from Scripture. The Bible tells us that Jesus Christ is the cornerstone of the entire structure. In 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 4-8, through 8, the Word of God declares for us, As you come to Him, a living stone, rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house, to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone, chosen and precious, and whoever believes in Him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and a stone of stumbling, and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. Church, Jesus Christ is the cornerstone. He is the keystone from which all things are built. This is the truth. This is the truth that we are called to proclaim and to live out every moment of our lives. But do recognize and realize there are people who will take great offense at this. Maybe you at one point in your life took great offense at this, that Jesus claimed to be the way, the truth, and the life, that the church declares that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, and that no one can come to God except through Him. 
This is offensive to those who are not followers of Jesus. But we as the church are called to uphold and to proclaim that truth. And what we build our lives upon is the truth of Jesus, but also the writings of the prophets and the apostles. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 19 through 22 tells us this. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. Christ Jesus Himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In Him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. So we have Jesus as the cornerstone, and we have the foundation laid as the apostle and prophets. We are to live out and to proclaim the truth that is in the entirety of God's Word. It is applicable to every part of our lives. It is not just a gospel presentation that we make to people, but we are to have a faith for all of life, for every single thing that we say and do into every area that we move into and out of, that we live in uh, right now and then we'll live in one day. We are to take this truth and to apply it, and to proclaim it, and to live it out wherever we go. And upon that, we understand that we are the pillar and buttress of truth. We are the propagators and proclaimers of truth into the world. And you need to know, and you've got to get used to the idea, this will not make you popular. In the world that we live in today, to say that Jesus is the only way, to ascribe biblical morals and biblical principles to issue is going to put you in hot water with people. Those on the left side of the political aisle and those on the right side of the political aisle, if you find yourself all the way on one aisle or the other, I'll just tell you, you are not upholding the truth of Scripture. There is no political party in America or in the world that can lay claim to and hold stake to. We have it all together. Our side is the Jesus side. And so what we need to do, whether you are on the left or whether you are on the right, is that you need to speak truth to those around you to proclaim the beautiful gospel truth of Jesus Christ. And one of the issues that I am most concerned about for the church, especially those of you who are of college age in this world, and what I see and I hear taking place in the world, is around the issue of justice. The church should be about justice. But let me ask you, how do you know that the justice you are promoting is in alignment with this? The justice that is being preached to you and the justice that you are preaching and proclaiming to the world around you, how do you know it's in alignment with this? If you were to look up a simple definition of justice, you would find this, the attainment of what is just, especially that which is fair, moral, right, merited, or in accordance with law. And let me say, on the surface, that sounds kind of good. But if what is being promoted is fair, goes against Scripture, is it justice? 
What if the morality being promoted in the world today is against God's standard? What if what is being told, we're told is right, goes against the holiness and character of God? What if even though it is in accordance with the law, it is against God's moral attributes, against God's holiness? Should we support that type of justice? See, I would define justice a different way. I would say that Christians understand justice to be one thing and one thing alone, the restoration of God's established order. For justice means that things are to be made right. They are to put into their right place. And so if we look back into the garden, we see that things were originally right, but now because of Adam and Eve's sin, the world is broken. But yet, did not the Lord Jesus Himself, when the disciples said, Jesus, what should we pray? Teach us how to pray. He said, Father, hallowed be Thy name. Your kingdom come, Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. What Jesus begins the Lord's Prayer with is that the Father would reestablish order on earth as it is in heaven where everything is done according to His will. So church, if we are going to actively proclaim that justice needs to be meted out in the world, if we are to actively propagate the idea of justice and to be just in our society, we must make sure that as the pillar and buttress of truth, that we are building our systems and our ministries and our lives and the things that we are doing upon this idea of establishing God's order upon the earth and not just some idea of justice that appeals to the masses. And everything that we need in order to be a just people is in this book. Now let me tell you, the moment you begin to promote this idea of justice into the world, you will meet a lot of opposition. Because we will not agree on the terms of justice. But for the Christian, justice can only be bound by the character of God and by His instruction to us in the Word of God. Is the justice you are promoting and propagating as truth into the world, is it based on God's Word? Or is it based on some humanistic theory being espoused by man? From here, we get ready to move into what can be seen either as the bridge or the center of the entire letter of 1 Timothy. We all understand what a bridge does. We have one landmass here, we have one landmass here, and we want to cross this expanse so we build a bridge in the middle, and it allows us to cross over from where we've been to where we want to go. We also understand the idea of the center. We also want the idea of the sun. We know that the sun is the center of the solar system. We know that everything in our solar system revolves around the sun. In the same way, what I'm about to read to you in verse 16 functions in two ways. It is now going to connect everything that Paul has said in the first part of this, of his instructions to a young church, to everything he will say following. But it's also what everything is revolving around in this letter. The idea here, and you need to understand this, with all the wonderful and magnificent things that Paul has seen and experienced in his life as a follower of Jesus, 
all the amazing miracles, all the amazing escapes, the thing that Paul keeps coming back to that blows his mind over and over and is the center of everything in his life is the person and work of Jesus Christ. He just proclaims this hymn which was apparently recited often in the early church. And before he gets to it, he just says, Great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. And what he's saying in here, he's not saying it's still a mystery, like we're trying to discover it, for the word mystery in the Greek here is talking about revelation. He's saying that everything that was written about in the Old Testament has now been revealed incredibly clearly to us. It has been made known. We have seen it. Some were able to touch it. Some were able to speak to it. Some were able to interact with it. But this redemptive plan that God had in place, even before Adam and Eve sinned, we have now seen it come to full revelation and manifestation in the person and work of Jesus Christ for this manifestation. This has been this mystery of godliness has been revealed to us. And what Paul is saying here is godliness. What he's saying is godly is that this God-likeness has been revealed. This deity has been revealed. So we're not talking just about a doctrine here in the mystery of godliness. We're not just talking about a theological principle here. We are talking about the per- a person. We are talking about the Lord Jesus Christ. And look at what he says in this hymn. He was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. This hymn can be broken down into two sections. The first three lines and the last three lines. The first three lines, if you were going to give a heading to each line, it would be this. Incarnation, resurrection, glorification. Paul proclaims about our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. He was manifested in the flesh. Here, it should be calling up in your mind, if you're familiar with the Scripture, John chapter 1, verses 1-3 through and 14. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen His glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. The mystery of godliness, the thing that blew Paul's mind, the center for which he is writing all of this letter to Timothy is the fact that Jesus Christ, God Himself, was manifested in the flesh. Not only this, do we have the incarnation, but He was vindicated by the Spirit. His resurrection, Paul is saying that Jesus Christ rising from the dead is what vindicates Him. It is the true declaration of His perfection and holiness. And this came when the Spirit raised Him to life. Because the Bible declares in Romans chapter 1, verse 4, He was declared the Son of God with power by the resurrection from the dead according to the Spirit of holiness. He says in the third line that he was seen by angels. 
This expression of Paul is likely a reference to the worship given by angels to the ascended Christ. And if this interpretation is correct, then then we must understand that this is His glorification, that they would see Him, that He sits in praise and honor, that He is worshipped at the throne of God for who He is, God incarnate. Paul is blown away by this mystery of godliness. The fact that God Himself would take on flesh to come and die for your sin. To come and die for my sin. That He would actually come from the riches of heaven, from His kingdom on high down to the earth in the most lowly of circumstances, not as a prince and as a king, but one born to a blue-collar family in an obscure town, seemingly in the middle of nowhere, would have a nondescript childhood and for 30 years would hang out with his family, would build things with his hands. And one day, when it was time after 30 years to step into ministry, he would be baptized and be proclaimed to be the Son of God. All the while from birth up to the point of his death, he would live a sinless life for you and me. He would live a sinless life for the glory of God. He would live a sinless life so that he could go and do the thing for which he came. To allow himself to be placed upon a cross. To be excruciatingly and unjustly murdered for your sin and for mine. This mystery blew Paul's mind. He talks about it all the time. He reminds the church, the family of God, about it all the time. Church, this is an incredible mystery that has been revealed to us. We are to proclaim and to propagate this truth throughout the world every day of our lives. We are to preach it to ourselves and we are to preach it to others in the things that we say, and in the things that we do. For there is no other greater thing, no other greater aim toward which we should live. And he moves from this first part that proclaims the person and work of Jesus, and he then talks about the work of the early church, the ministry of the early church. He says that he was proclaimed among the nations. You hear, I'm sure, can picture in your mind the Great Commission when Jesus says, Go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey everything that I have commanded you. He has been proclaimed. He is being proclaimed. We must continue to proclaim Jesus to the nations, to those nearest to you and to those farthest away. Church, we have hope that He was believed on in the world. Our message will not fall void. It it is not void. Our message is reaching those for whom God has intended it should reach. It is deconstructing those who are running from God. It is deconstructing and abolishing the strongholds in their minds and in their lives, revealing the truth. We should pray that God would break down those walls 
For we can preach all day, but people will continue to take offense and stumble over the stumbling stone of Jesus Christ. So we must pray that God would take out their heart of stone and give them a heart of flesh, that they would have the capacity and the ability to believe in the person working Jesus in a profound and mighty way that it radically reorients and changes their lives. And this hymn concludes reminding us of the ascension of Jesus, that He was taken up in glory, that He now sits and rules on high, that He is in control of every single thing that is taking place in this world. We are reminded in Scripture that everything is under His control, even though we may not see that it looks like it's under His control. But assuredly it is. And we are to preach and to proclaim this truth wherever we go. This is the expectation of our behavior. This is the expectation of our conduct. That we would be holy like God is holy that we would be holy like Jesus is holy, that we would live like Jesus lived, that we would manifest the presence of God everywhere we go, knowing that we will be met with opposition at every turn. There are people who have always opposed this message and will always oppose this message until Jesus comes back and makes all things new. But church, our job in this time, in this place, and in this moment is to make sure that the center of our lives, the core of our very being, is the preaching, is the proclamation, and the propagating of the truth that Jesus Christ came to save sinners of whom we are the worst. But yet no matter what we have done, no matter our shame, no matter our guilt, God offers forgiveness to everyone who will repent and believe. For the Lord our God tells us there is not one single person who calls on the name of the Lord Jesus who will not be saved. Knowing what Jesus has done, knowing that the Holy Spirit resides in us, may we go out into the world with great confidence and boldness telling the entire world this message. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through Him. Let's pray. Father, I thank You for this day. I thank You for this time. I thank You for this opportunity that we could come and that we could listen to Your Word that we could proclaim the wonderful and great mystery of godliness about the person and work of Jesus. May we never lose our awe or our fascination with the goodness and greatness of Jesus. May we never lose our wonder and awe about His death, burial, and resurrection. May we never lose that wonder and awe which will motivate us to live lives in such a way that we are holy just as you are holy. Father, may your spirit stir up in us an incredible passion for your word and for your truth and for your glory and for your honor. 
for the almighty name of King Jesus, the first and the last. God, may Aletheia Church always have a burning desire and passion for the person and work of Jesus, whether we are located here or around the world. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.